HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Organic Grower School. Coming up March 13th through 21st, 2021 is their 28th annual Spring Conference. Learn more at organicgrowerschool.org. You are listening to Fields, the podcast, with Melissa Metric and Wythe Marshall. On Fields, we bring you stories about the future, present, and past of urban agriculture, and in general, explore really interesting concepts and meet lots of fascinating people who get up every day and grow food in and around cities, starting with the city we live in, New York City. Moreover, we'll investigate all the whys behind getting up in the morning and working as a farmer in the city today. I'm Wythe Marshall, and I'm here with Melissa Metric. And our amazing guest today is Penny McBride. Penny, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. And uh, yeah, we thought times are a little hectic, but we thought we would stop to have a conversation about some inspiring aspects of urban farming, potentially. Um, and we can talk about all kinds of things. Maybe maybe there are some topics that you want to raise, Penny. But just to, to let people know who you are and where you are, do you want to give us kind of a, an introduction? Sure. I first met you, Wes, uh, through the Farm Tech Society, where we both sit on the board. And um, we've, we've had some great, inspiring conversations and... Uh, networking opportunities through the Farm Tech Society. I co-founded Vertical Harvest some years ago. And Vertical Harvest is a three-story indoor farm. It's it's kind of a hybrid hydroponic indoor farm, but that's located in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, where I reside. Currently, I'm the COO of Second Chances Farm in Wilmington, Delaware. So pre-COVID, I was commuting to Wilmington every three weeks, essentially, and spending some time there. Um, And now I just take a lot of virtual tours of the farm and spend a lot of time on the phone with the staff. So the two unique things about Vertical Harvest and Second Chances Farm are the employment models that they carry are a little different than most farms at Vertical Harvest. Um, The employment model was built on hiring adults with developmental disabilities. And um, at Second Chances Farm, we work with to help reduce recidivism. So we're working with ex-offenders in our program there. And both projects have been amazing lessons for me in appreciating everybody's different capacity for work and for accommodating people and really appreciating everyone's strengths. It's taught me a lot beyond farming. 
How did you kind of get into this work and, and especially hiring the people that you hire working with these certain communities? What kind of inspired you to do that? So it wasn't intentional. I had always wanted to start a local farm because I actually grew up on a family farm in Colorado. And so I think I already always appreciated what local food production does for like an individual on a personal level. And also, I think there was so, something really amazing to be able to understand how food grows. And I realized that not everybody understands how food grows, right? People may not realize some things that are kind of fundamental to life. And so there's something really, really great about that. And here in Jackson Hole, I've been working on different community development projects for years. And somebody, I don't know, just kind of caught wind of a project that I was doing. And she was a case manager for adults with developmental disabilities. And so she reached out to me to see if I had jobs for any of her clients that were kind of non-traditional. I really kind of was not thinking very broadly at the time. And I, I didn't think there were any opportunities in the work that I was doing that might really serve her clients. Essentially, I was kind of putting them in a box and really not understanding that they had the same capacity as anybody else. Because all I heard was that with disabilities, right? And that's, you know, I, I think that was kind of the start of the learning that I had. It really did kind of inspire me because I the conversation started and I thought, well, this might be great the great time for the the community greenhouse that I've been wanting to build. And I really didn't hadn't put much thought into like what that meant. And so I just started to get have some community meetings with people whose adult children were clients and to kind of gauge their interest and commitment to see how much they might be able to help move this forward. And then with some government and non-government agencies to see if they might be good collaborative partners. And really, that's kind of where it started. And then, you know, like looking for land that was accessible to people who could use public transportation and then realizing where we live, 97% of the land is federally owned, essentially. So there's such a small portion of land that's actually available for private development. And so that it's very expensive, right? Like it's virtually impossible is what I realized to start a farm that would be really sustainable as a business. And so the town of Jackson actually became a partner. They leased the property for the greenhouse for a very, very minimal fee. Hmm. And in the end, they, through a business incubator that we have um, in the local community, they actually helped us to get some of the, some of the grant funding from the state to help start the greenhouse. So although the greenhouse is a for-profit entity, it was just really through these partnerships that it allowed it to happen. So that, that was my introduction. And, you know, it, it took years for us to build the whole farm because both through fundraising and developing the systems that would work in a three, three-story hydroponic farm took a long time because, you know, this was really about 12 years ago. And 12 years ago, there really wasn't that much on the market as compared to what there is today. So it was really a really great education for me. I'm not saying that everything we built was perfect, but I learned a lot along the way. And is that why you decided to do like indoor farming? Because land was so hard to kind of come by because all of it was federally owned or it was because you had a background in this and you were interested in specifically doing like indoor vertical? Really, it was um, driven by our climate. Because when I started to realize that 
job creation would be a big part of the motivation for the development of the farm. Really, you can only grow about three months of the year here. And so it didn't have much merit if it was only going to be functional for three months of the year. So then we moved to the concept of something indoors and then what actually could be durable to handle the snow loads here. And then really, if we only have this tiny footprint um, of a piece of land, I mean, it's about a third of a block. That's when the vertical came in. So it wasn't really intentional at all. It was just very functional. So very, it's a very organic story, but that's probably why it took so long to, to pull it into like the, the world of like it's operating, it's out there. Um, it, it is up and running today, right? Like vertical harvest yeah. is still going. It is still going today, and the employment model still stands. And um, you know, we're still producing food. So it was it was a great kind of incubator for a lot of different things. And you know, I didn't think it, as I sit in my role today at Second Chances Farm, I didn't think the employment model. Not to say that they're using the the same employment model, but I think. It made me realize that it's funny that it's kind of what's happening at Vertical Harvest and Second Chances Farm is unique because what I realize is that for most businesses, like hiring people of different capacities or backgrounds kind of should be the norm. And maybe it is like, I don't know who's working as the checker at the grocery store, but I think it's interesting how we, we tend to feel more comfortable when we give people or organizations labels about how they operate. And that how we allow compensation for certain groups if they are labeled. And, you know, I, I'm not saying that we shouldn't hold everybody to the same work standards, but maybe we should actually look at the person more than we do to really help them achieve, you know, their greatest potential. And what that does in the end, you know, maybe it takes a different amount of energy because rather than just saying, show up from nine to five, get these 10 tasks done. And that's all I care care about, right? Like, but then what is your, what return are you getting? Like, maybe you're not getting an employee that stays there for 10 years then. And then you have to train people again and again and again. And then maybe their productivity, even though you may didn't intentionally originally think it would be really great is better because you have given them that much extra energy. So I think it really has taught me a lot about looking to spend more time with people to kind of get them where they need to be. Yeah. And just in general, like the, what access certain people have, you know, like what access certain groups have that maybe they didn't even think of that, that that would be a career that they could go into or something that maybe they would even be interested in or, you know, and just that idea of giving that space, right. Or that, yeah, just that access or that opportunity. Yeah. And that representation, like that, that does matter, I think, to change maybe how people are thinking about who does what work to, to Melissa, to your point, like who, who do we think of as a farmer? And I think it's like interesting to, to think of ways that's already changing. A lot of people just don't know even. I mean, they might have this image of a small family farm and not understand, you know, mechanized labor and, you know, uh, migrant labor are really the, the foundation of our, of most of our, our food production system. Um, but then when you think about who, who should be part of or who, who should be allowed to, to, to work. I mean, it's like, yeah, he, it's amazing. That wasn't, I, I feel like you must be doing something right. Cause I'd never heard of this topic until vertical harvest. Um, it makes a lot of sense. And now I feel like I've read a little more and I'm like, okay, yeah. Like agriculture has a lot of opportunities for people with different abilities, 
but um, it must be something that that needs to be talked about more or else I feel like, you know what I mean? Like it, it would just be something we all sort of know intuitively from culture. And I feel like it's, it's the opposite. It's like, yeah, like, like you said, you, you sort of were surprised in a way as well um, and took several years to kind of work out how it would, would function. Um, I definitely am super interested in the idea of people coming out of the carceral system, entering agriculture. And I feel like that's something I've talked with people here in New York a lot about. So I'd love to hear, you know, second chances. And I know COVID has interrupted a little, but how that's going and, and, you know, what, what insights you've drawn on from vertical harvest and yeah, overall, I mean, I think I just, you know, again, it sounds like you have done something right to get a lot of attention for it. So, well, I mean, you know, and I don't, I don't think it's me really. I think it's just people have an amazing capacity to step up to the plate and really just kind of try. Second chances is, you know, even though COVID has slowed my trips to visit them there. So their cohorts each go through 16 week training periods and they just started. Well, I guess it's been a couple of weeks now, their second cohort. So they have an amazing amount of interest in um, the employment there because they, you know, they're offering training and skills that are very unique. And it's interesting because it would be fascinating to pe- ask the the people that are in the cohort if they had some sort of preconceived notion about like what the farming part of it would be like, right? Yeah. Because it's modern farming and it's just a little different. I mean, it doesn't, you still have to wait for the plants to grow and everything like that, but you know, sowing the seeds and, um, and feeding them nutrients and controlling the daylight. It's all very, it's so, you know, it's clean and it's, and it's very kind of systematized much more than I think people realize. So it, it, everything's going really well. And I, and I've, what it sounds like the second cohort is doing really great. And the great thing about an indoor farm is that it does have so many components that are, you know, there's, there's a lot of data and management, right? So I think we've noticed that there are some people who are really strong in data management and, and have been incredibly helpful in that regard. You know, if they weren't there, it, it would just be so much more challenging for me to do my job because there are some really technically skilled folks in, in both co- cohorts and everybody has really strong skills from like strong mechanical skills that have allowed us to work on, you know, a lot of the electrical and plumbing needs that we would probably have to hire specialist tra- specialty trades for. I think everybody's really found their niche in the second cohort. We had the first cohort do a lot of the training for the, for the second cohort doing this first couple of weeks. And so everybody took on a specific training day, our training topic for each day. So it was everything from cleaning to seeding to harvesting to introducing the standard operating procedures for food safety. So it was, I think it was very empowering for the people from the first cohort to really be able to train and be authorities for what, you know, six weeks ago, they were not experts and now they are back to farm tech society and the education piece that you're working on, Wyeth, you know, people may not realize how important technical training, you know, technical level training is. I think it can have such a critical impact on really giving people the skills much more than they think they have the, the capacity to, to kind of carry. And also just in the sense of teaching those skills, you then have to realize what you already know, kind of like what you're saying, you know, it's like, all right, how am I going to teach this thing? How would I explain it? What are the details? How can I make this not make, but like, how could I get this person interested or 
Yeah. And the, and the idea of becoming a manager, I mean, it's different than just knowing the technical skill. It's that interpersonal thing um, that you're mentioning that I think you, you have to imagine in the future, there's going to be more and more, at least in the future of work studies. It's like, we're going to be managing ourselves because we're all going to be gig economy freelancers, no matter what. Um, yeah. But we're also managing a fleet of robots and our Alexas and our whatevers that are controlling our plants and our lights. Um, right. Everything is going to have this level of concierge-ship where we're, we're giving some responsibility and trust to another person who's distant or a machine that's not a person, but you talk to it like a person. And then, you know, somebody's our boss, we're someone else's boss, the city of kind of flattening hierarchies or not having traditional roles with boss, employee, you know, intern, but, but different levels. Um, I think there's something to that and, and exploring these models, not in a, by taking a traditional business and breaking it apart, but by starting these new businesses with people who don't necessarily care, are not going to get necessarily those jobs. You know, there, there's right. a lot stacked against them to get those jobs. So like, yeah, make up something new. And, and I, it's interesting to hear sort of what shakes out. And yeah, I definitely think actually it's something we should talk about more with the Education Committee. So Farm Tech Society is this industry nonprofit trade association for controlled environment agriculture. So, so greenhouses and vertical farms. Um, that Penny, you, you helped co-found. Um, and I joined uh, last year to talk about, uh, you know, the volunteer board to talk about um, education and alignment across regions and across levels on education and vocational training. Uh, but we've, we've spent a lot of time talking with industry members and higher education partners about things like, you know, intro to plant physiology. But I, I think, yeah, so much of it is you're getting at is, is this broader idea of like working in this weird new environment. <laughs> And, and there's just, yeah, there's a lot of pieces. So it's, it's definitely something I'm, I'm very interested in. I mean, I've interviewed a lot of people about, but I've, you know, that's like, like say, I would love to visit Second Chances when that is physically uh, safe to do <laughs> and like volunteer, you know, whatever, just see, you know, kind of what's, what's going on. Could you, could you walk us through actually like what, what do these farms look like? I mean, you mentioned vertical harvest, but I know Second Chances is a little different. Can you sort of describe the farm or is that like top secret? No, not at all. Um, so vertical harvest is, three distinct floors. So the reason I call it a hybrid is because it's not a total controlled environment egg in that it does have a glass facade. So it's on one side and, and on the third floor, it, it kind of mimics a true greenhouse um, because it has a glass roof also. But the reason that we do require so much artificial lighting does come from the, the climate the shortened days. And then if you, if you're, um, you know, within the reaches of the greenhouse on the first and second floor, you know, if you're not facing the glass facade, you, you will, you know, have lots of shading. So the plants in the back would never grow. The first and second floor, ha it looks like an inverted T, the growing carousels. So the, um, there's a rotating system that goes up the glass facade and rotates down the back and, um, moves into the second floor for um, harvesting and management of the plants and to take advantage of just more space. And so they are rotating on a timer. And then there are also fixed shelves for mostly microgreens. And then for propagation and germination, there's more fixed shelving to take advantage of like any additional space that isn't filled by the carousels. And then the third floor um, presently has vining crops, so tomatoes. So that's what looks like a, just a kind of a typical greenhouse. And then at Second Chances Farm, we're using the Sanon Bioradix system, the kind of fixed racks of you can do you can do different types of growing. So you can do like a shallow water ebb and flood system or NFT, depending on how you time the the movement of the water. And so it looks kind of like an IKEA system that it's and it's very clean and easy to assemble. 
I mean, there's lots of wiring and plumbing, but most of it's housed within the legs of the of the growing system. So it is very, very clean looking. And I love it for that because there's there's not a lot of exposure of the plumbing and the, the lighting. So it's kind of one less thing to worry about corroding or getting dirty because they are contained and housed so nicely and easy to assemble. And and, and you can grow either in trays. So kind of like, uh, like you might see microgreens growing in a tray of different sizes and then holes to grow kind of the, um, things like bok choy or individual plants or heads of lettuce. Traditionally, I think we're going to be stacking up to eight of these racks. I should have the, the actual height, but I don't have it in my head. It's quite high. We'll, we'll need a lift to get to the, the top level. We have one going right now. But I actually think we've been able to access it with a rolling staircase quite safely. So we're in phase one of the farm where we started kind of a prototype farm and we were just going to expand it to because it was ready and the rest of the warehouse isn't ready right now. But it, it actually turned out to be quite productive. So we're going to keep the farm in place and we're calling it farm one. Farm two will be an additional 15,000 square feet. So kind of moving into the warehouse, into the other half of the warehouse. And then actually we're taking on a partner for what we're calling Farm 3. That's going to be a hemp farm. And so they're doing some trials within the farm right now. And we will probably help some with operations at the hemp farm. So that's been really fun, a fun new thing for me to learn about too, because I knew nothing about hemp. Why hemp? I don't know the whole story. I should. The, the owner of the farm, Agit, Matthew George, is like, he is always, he's a mover and a shaker. And so he, uh, he, I think the hemp farm was kind of just, when I first got to know him, it was going to be in another facility. And then it made more sense for them to come in to partner in the warehouse. We were doing, helping them with trials. So it's been fun to check out hemp trials every time I'm there. And we're, we're trialing different growing systems and different lights. Do you guys talk about hemp much on the podcast? We haven't yet. We've definitely like, we've, we've thought about the topic and we know that it's been like a kind of up and coming topic. Yeah, we reached out to some people and I mean, of all the people we reached out to, that's been like the hardest group to get some solid dates with. And I don't know if that's reflective of a culture of hemp growing or if it's just, you know, people are busy and, and, you know, maybe, um, yeah, field farmers in the field, these are field growers, um, you know, ha- are, are maybe busier and more tied to, to seasonal production. Um, and this was pre-COVID. So, yeah, it'd be great to go revisit it now. I mean, a lot of it, I think, has changed. Um, even a year ago, it was just booming. And the industry news, I see, you know, it seems like a lot of people feel like, oh, well, hemp was this fad and it's not actually going to make that much money. And uh-huh. so, I, I mean, I've definitely seen... Um, I've seen some stuff that makes me wonder just like, yeah, what is, what is going on with the state of hemp? I haven't looked at it recently in terms of the numbers, but it's cur- I'd be curious to hear how that goes for second chances. And um, yeah, maybe more hybrid models. Maybe it's, it's more, which would kind of right. be great if farms diversified more, right? I mean, can you remind me why people grow hemp again? Is it for CBD or is it for clothing, like fiber? I haven't looked at the numbers, but I mean, I think, you know, the driving factor is for the medicinal component. And certainly then they don't want to just waste the fur because I'm, I'm assuming it has quite a bit of value because of the controversy or the, you know, the challenge of cotton. But I, I'm assuming the medicinal portion has a lot more financial gain. There's people looking at it for a protein um, and also for like a concrete amendment. So like you could make hempcrete 
yeah, basically for materials beyond like traditionally hemp and rope is like one material, but you can use hemp. It's a great, I mean, it's kind of like, you know, people revisited um, mushroom. Uh, so the chitin in mycelium, the root networks of mushrooms is very useful as just a material. So material science can do things with that that go far beyond, you know, supporting a mushroom or being edible. So it's, I think similarly people have reevaluated hemp as something that's, that's good to grow in terms of the environment. Um, maybe it makes you money because yeah, of, of um, medicinal purposes. And then also maybe has these like, let's transform, you know, industries to be more circular and use natural materials. I don't know how far those things have gotten. I think a lot of it was probably, yeah, this boom based on the, the medicinal aspect. And then it's a question of like, you know, is that actually going to work out for, for different growers? I imagine. And again, I'm looking, I just pulled up the ERS, the USDA report on this um, from last year, but you know, how many people are new to farming who like bought a bunch of land and seeds for him? I've, I've definitely heard, I won't say, but I've heard at least one anecdote of like, yeah, like people who just bought a bunch of stuff and didn't know really what to do with it. I know there's also experts who've been growing forever and are really into it. So I, I definitely, I don't know enough. I'm not, that's not my expertise, but it, it's, it's great to hear. I had no idea that, yeah, you were doing that as part of Second Chances. So you will have to be back on to talk with, with some other growers <laughs> in a little bit. Yeah, that'd be great. This episode is brought to you by Organic Grower School. Coming up March 13th through 21st, 2021 is their 28th annual Spring Conference. Organic Grower School Spring Conference is a -a one-of-a-kind event that offers workshops on organic growing and sustainable living. Its mission is to provide down-to-earth, practical advice while remaining affordable and accessible. This year, the conference is going virtual and will be accessible to more people than ever before. Attendees will learn how to farm, garden, and live organically through 12 tracks and more than 30 workshops. It will feature three keynote talks, Q&As, and lunchtime entertainment. Tracks include cooking, gardening, herbs, mushrooms, permaculture, sustainable living, and more. Plus, it's affordable, starting at just $20. Learn more at organicgrowerschool.org. So what is your role? So do you, are you more in charge of um, like training the systems, the plants? Is it everything? Like, what does it mean to be COO of a startup right. hybrid indoor farm that works with people coming out of the carceral system in the middle of the pandemic? Well, I mean, they have a great growing team in place at Second Chances. They're, they're young and fairly inexperienced, but I have been really impressed about their capacity to learn quickly. Um, and they're a really bright team. And so we, we looked at setup, we looked at workflow, lots of things from, you know, helping to understand what systems to, there's so much on the market now, as far as control systems, nutritional and monitors, because a lot of monitoring systems from the field are kind of moving over to indoor growing. And there's a lot, as you guys know, in development for indoor growing too. It's just understanding who's kind of really beyond their beta beta phase and really functioning well. Getting through all of that for, you know, it's hard when you're in startup, you can't afford all the bells and whistles. So understanding like what at this point is necessary to function at an optimal level. Because, of, you know, if I had my way, we would just buy everything that we needed. But unfortunately, that's not, that's not the reality. I've had to do a lot of vetting of different systems and then bringing it to the team, 
to make sure that everybody's comfortable with what I'm putting in front of them. I've definitely, you know, I've probably brought them a few things where they they think that I am shooting for the moon. And I've done that a little too. And so that and looking at seed varieties to understand what's growing best for indoor farms, because surprisingly enough, not everybody is breeding seeds specifically for indoor farming. Kind of getting through that to understand what varieties are best for indoor farms. And just making sure that and, and, you know, it's still a work in progress for us because we're in an existing building that we have to put a, a lot of retrofits into. It's not complete at all. And so we're still doing a lot of build out and planning because really farm two is going to be carrying a lot of the workload for farm one. So we're still looking at things like harvesting machines. How big do, does our cooler and processing room need to be? So it's been really kind of, there's been you know, there's been a fair amount of bootstrapping too, even though we're using this really great system from San and Bio, there's so many other pieces, right? Like originally, so the first week of harvest for second chances was when COVID hit. So they were supposed to be selling to restaurants. Oh, and then all the restaurants closed that same week. So I think everybody was in a little bit of a, luckily nobody panicked. Like I said, the founder Ajit just, he used all of his connections to suddenly create all these farm to table customers. So suddenly everybody on our, everybody was figuring out how to do home delivery. We had to get some great, you know, great home delivery app because how do you schedule 250 deliveries all of a sudden besides just like looking at a map and driving in a million different directions? You know, I think during one of the first deliveries, our assistant grower turned delivery driver was out until like 11 o'clock at night doing deliveries before we quite had everything figured out. So, so as the CEO, I've helped to figure out everything like, okay, so we need some packaging now for home delivery rather than the restaurants. And how can we quickly (laughs) and economically get the right packaging, you know, and I, and that hasn't been perfect, but it's been great. You know, you have a great team when you can survive something like COVID working through all of that. And uh, we got GAP certification maybe a little over a month ago. Or, yeah. And we got the inspectors to come in, even though they were really, you know, it was a, there was a, there was a lot of concern because I mean, as they're still concerned now, right. But they, they weren't really doing inspections. Can you talk? So you're, I know you're a big fan of food safety as a topic, right? That's is that fair to say? <laughs> and not just good agricultural practice and, and all of it. Um, yeah. Can you, can you say a little about um, concerns or thing like how you guys have thought about that with, with COVID or does it not change anything because you're indoors? So it doesn't actually sort of throw too many wrenches in that. When you, when you implement a, like um, an official food safety program into your farm, I think it's a little daunting for employees because they, they're like, oh my gosh, there are checklists everywhere now. And I have to sign off on that. I officially cleaned these 10 things and put it back in the right place. But the ironic thing is with COVID, it was perfect because we were pretty much there minus the spacing and then in the masks. I mean... I think it was so much easier had because we had gone through all those procedures and we were being careful to be so, I mean, I think every farm is really hygienic and, and careful, but when you are going through an official certification inspection process, you have a third party come in to, to verify that you're measure, following all these measures, right? The biggest challenge for us right now with COVID is that the, the scarcity of some of the PPEs is really challenging. Like we would use gloves anyway, but we have to just scramble to make sure 
that we have enough gloves because there's still a shortage of gloves and masks and other things like that. So food safety, I am surprised that even smaller farms don't have to... Well, and I guess it it just depends on your customer and whether or not they're asking for it. But most states, a lot of states have reimbursement programs. So they will actually pay for like a pre help pay for pre-inspection and even the inspection itself. So it's just, I could, I wouldn't necessarily, I think there's a misunderstanding that it's a big cost to farms. And, And I guess it is in that it takes time to set up your food safety program, but really it's going to save you money in the end. Because you are that much more cautious and careful about about people's health and welfare. And as a business owner, kind of why wouldn't you, right? But there is kind of this misconception that it's going to cost you a lot of money. But if you, if you, there's so many, like Cornell has so many great resources for you that they, they make it pretty easy. I mean, not just Cornell, I'm just mentioning Cornell. I think because of your affiliation with them, wife, but they do have great resources and they create so many different links to like other universities that have great resources. And so I think the, the educational committee has done a lot to support good food safety. And, you know, I think it just doesn't sound very exciting. Well, part of it, one of the mottos of science and technology and society studies is, uh, you know, follow the boring, like follow the infrastructure, the things people take for granted. So, yeah, I'm, I'm always curious about protocols and regulations and, and yeah, things that businesses um, hate to do, but always do and uh, that aren't customer facing because it, it tells you something about the culture. And, and as you said, it's, it's actually kind of reassuring that, yeah, like you said, a lot of food businesses are already worried about health and welfare before a pandemic, um, in part because it's about being competitive. Now with the pandemic, it's it's life and death. I can imagine a year from now, not to be flipped, but like, you know, will you guys with the hemp make your own masks and PPE? <laughs> like, I don't know how long will this go on and how will this change that? Oh, sorry. That's, that's no. too weird. So, you know, you've been involved now with, a, with this whole idea of like an international trade association and seeing some ups and downs there. But I was curious also how you got into that world and just basically you're involved with other farms. So I know you've worked on these two farms I and mean, you talked about that story. But what about this bigger, wider world? I know you visited um, New York, but you've traveled all over and I feel like you've seen a lot of farms. So, so how did you get involved with like Farm Tech Society specifically or more generally just kind of policy and, and associations between farmers, especially indoor farmers? Part two, you know, where do you see that going or where would you like people to, to head in the future? But, but yeah, I'm, I'm just curious about that. I came to the kind of the association world when Henry Gordon Smith asked me to take his board seat when he was kind of finishing his tenure at the AVF. Um, And then that kind of rolled into my work with the Farm Tech Society. When indoor farming was kind of new, I would make a point to just on my own visit indoor farms when I was traveling. So I've seen some great indoor farms in Singapore, in just different parts of the US and in Europe. And it's just really fun to see how much work people have been putting into the innovation of indoor farming because of that. And I think, right, COVID reinforces the need for a kind of a shorter food chain or a, a closer, more local food system. And, I, and indoor farming can be that solution, which is really, you know, I guess that's maybe the upside of COVID. I'm not sure is that everybody realizes how, or hopefully it's helping everybody realize the importance of, of that need. And, and, and interestingly enough, kind of on a so I also have a consulting business and I've been getting a lot of calls and I'm not, I'm sure COVID has nothing to do with it, but I, I've been getting a lot of calls from people doing kind of redevelopment or community development projects that have been wanting to put indoor farms or local farms into the, to the planning of their development. So 
so it's really great to see this kind of resurgence of urban farms on, you know, I don't care if it's in a greenhouse or in a field. I just really think it's great that people are starting to see the importance of local food production. And, you know, since COVID, so many friends have called me and have said, can you tell me of a great home system so I can have my own farm? And, you know, unfortunately, I don't like I don't have a lot to point them to as far as like, I'm not a great backyard farmer. To tell you the truth, like you should see my backyard farm. It's not very pretty and it's full of weeds. But so maybe people should send some resources to me as far as like what I can refer people to is to build their backyard farm because I'm not, yeah, I'm not helping that cause right now, even though I'd love to. But I guess the point is like I really am so excited that indoor farming is kind of think taking a new seat at the table. Huh. I think it's just gonna keep growing. And we'll see how, you know, I think the challenge is how to integrate it into these development projects to main, make sure that they're kind of a standalone business because it, it has to function like it has, it takes care, it takes maintenance, it, it takes like respecting it as a business for it to be vibrant or making sure that you have a dedicated staff person because as excited as people get it around things you volunteerism sometimes only goes so far yeah we talked about that melissa like fads like is this just another moment when people grow a lot indoors for one year but then by year two if we're out of our homes will they still be growing the same way and as as people's lives change they don't have time to volunteer as much or or if it's like really hard work maybe or challenging or True. So I think figuring out like how can we create that kind of hybrid model of volunteerism, but making sure that it has some backbone to it as as a business. We're not just entrepreneurship in terms of profit, but like your the, your experiences tying this to social and cultural reasons to keep the farm going right. um, and the community values. So you're in this area. Um, it's a, it's a very interesting area. I just looked at a map because I was like, wait, where? Like I know it's in Wyoming, but. You know, I've never been to Jackson. So looking at Google Maps, it's like it is, it looks like it's in a hole. It's in this valley in this huge area of green of Grand Teton. And yeah, so thinking about the climate, but then also, you know, what would be valuable here where people have disposable income, but not a lot of land they're developing on, they might value, yeah, that social effect of bringing people together to have a, you know, productive role um, to be fulfilled almost like alongside the greens. And that maybe there's lots of places where farming can play that role where it's not just about selling the end product, but it's mm-hmm. about the experience, um, providing some other value and, and that stewardship, yeah, being being something you can plan around or organize a business around. So it's, it's interesting to, to see that play out in different ways in, in different parts of the country. And yeah, I imagine COVID will put a lot of pressure to start more small local farms, <laughs> short supply chains. So people, maybe maybe this is a time to try one thing, sorry, one thing that I was thinking about, is it federal land because it's all like forests and things like that? It's forest, um, forest service, a, lo- a lot of national park. So yeah. we border Grand Teton and Yellowstone National Park. Uh, yes, yes. And we have lots of forest service and some BLM land around us. So it's all... So just in the sense of like going a little bit further with the idea of climate change, you don't want to necessarily develop that land because then you're going to take forests away and you're going to till up all this soil and release all this carbon. And instead, you are doing this indoor farm where you're using a building, but it's taking up less space and you don't have to develop all this land for farming. So it's yeah. actually kind of also an interesting like futuristic idea in times ahead with climate change when climate's going to be really a factor 
and you're already dealing with that just in the area that you are in, but also just in the sense that you're preserving this federal land for forests, but you're still kind of growing food in this like small footprint. Yeah, exactly. I think that's the hope. I mean, I think there's still obviously a great place for field farming. Yeah, of course. Yeah. I do think, you know, I think that they, they complement each other well. And that's just what I think that we'll just have to look as the climate changes. Maybe we'll have to start farming things in the field, different crops, moving some of those crops indoors, creating more production with less water. Yeah. I think, yeah. I, I just, want the conversation to com- continue between both sectors of the agriculture industry. Or if there could be a hybrid of indoor-outdoor. I really think so. And I'm really, I'm really, you know, hopefully I'll be able to work on one of those projects one day because I feel like that is really the going to be the sweet spot, to tell you the truth. Yeah, I just heard a talk from a guy today. Um, he's a German architect and city planner who works in London on vertical farming in, in the city of London. And he was saying, you know, a lot of if you look at a map of arable land and a map of cities, they are almost one to one. It's like all of the cities are near all the arable land. And so you really have to think, you know, he was like, that's the one of the interesting things with indoor ag is giving you the opportunity to grow food in the city, but not take any more of that land that you might want to use. Yeah, for Melissa, to your point, you know, as, as land sparing, you know, as, as the lungs of the earth or for, you know, pollinator reservoir or, or to grow a field crop that you really need. Yeah. But you can have that option now. Well, you actually have some extra capacity in terms of indoor space. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's right. It's not that it's inherently good. It's just that it gives you tools that, that you know, 100 years ago, it wasn't as realistic to grow food indoors at scale the same way. So... Yeah, it's interesting to see where people take it, you know, these different hybrid models. Yeah. Yeah. Or maybe even the possibility of doing like permaculture outdoors or a food forest and then doing a lot of your annuals like lettuce indoors. That does make sense. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's exciting. I think it's a good time to be CEO. I mean, it sounds like from your job description, um, well, it sounds like you do a lot. But one thing that occurs to me is you get to, you have the most fun job. You get to spend all the money for someone else <laughs> and build out their, you know, grow all their stuff. So it's, it sounds like you're in a good uh, position. Yeah. And, and yeah, maybe uh, you will, right, lead some new project in a couple of years um, to explore some of these models we're discussing. Or you'll just make a lot of money with hemp. And <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, want, I want to start working on hemp packaging for food. Yes. So full of plastic. It drives me crazy. It's all plastic. Yeah, that's something that COVID has obviously set us back on is, is moving towards sustainable containers. But, you know, hopefully bioplastics is a field. It's one of these Cold War races where bioplastics are getting better and better and more degradable. But at the same time, people are just using more consumables. I mean, it's really terrible, but yeah. um, it's, it's, a, it's a bizarre kind of arms race there. But maybe hemp's the wonder cure. <laughs> Or, or like our, our packaging, like if it's mycelium or something like that could actually like fight a bacteria or a fungus, it'll be like a fungicide or like, you know, <laughs> I don't know. Who knows? that might be weird. I don't know. Your food's in it. But <laughs> no, well, metal, metal is, you know, a lot of things are in antimicrobial containers that before, you know, before the, the discovery of bacteria, there was some understanding of where food could healthfully ferment versus not ferment versus turn into like toxic goo. So, you know, I imagine, yeah, we'll continue that, that, that tradition. <laughs> Penny, it's almost 630. Um, do you have anything you want to plug? Is there anything we should look out for? Should we, do you want to plug Farm Tech Society or any other, uh, anything besides second chances that we should know about on the horizon for you? Oh gosh, uh, nothing that I, I mean, I think the other, I, I would welcome everybody to join Wyeth and at, I at the table at the Farm Tech Society. 
some guests that I would love for you guys to chat with that I kind of starting to get to know more a little bit more about the energy side of indoor farms because I feel like that needs to be addressed a little more like more renewable energy systems that are appropriate for indoor farms that kind of can create the balance that aren't so expensive or micro systems for indoor farms. I think, I feel like it's kind of fallen off the table in the conversation and I'm not sure why maybe the technology is just not there, but I'm always eager to hear more on the energy side. That's a great topic. Yeah, we should, we should definitely dig down on that. One also weird effect of this is oil is basically free now. So that's a problem for just that reason. You can start your farm and not pay as much for energy In, in terms of even just the true costs within the market system that already externalizes the real true costs, all the stuff linked to climate and pollution. Right now, the energy is so cheap that I, I'm, I think it's good in some ways people might start farms, but it might be bad if they're spending a lot of, of carbon and not really thinking about it. I know that Gotham Greens does a lot of renewable energy within... So Gotham Greens, which is like the greenhouse, a bunch of greenhouse farms in the city. And I think they're in Chicago. A lot of their sources, at least the one in Brooklyn on top of Whole Foods gets a lot of their energy from renewable sources like wind turbines or other things. Yeah, I think Gotham Greens is now has eight greenhouses, actually. Um, But yeah, they started in New York and they have a big one in Chicago. I think uh, one thing was just also the same talk um, that came up as co-location and like what are energy sources that are wasted, like waste heat. So a lot of industries create heat as a resource, but it's viewed as waste and it's just kind of funneled away so stuff doesn't Mm -hmm. melt. Greenhouses like like Penny in Wyoming, maybe you could use the heat and and carbon dioxide too. So that's that's something that hopefully uh, people can invent some some cool solutions around. Yeah, I've been looking into that with um, compost with using the excess heat from compost to passively heat buildings and things like that. But it was, it was too, it was space inefficient. Yeah. I think there's a lot of, there's, we're still in a valley with a lot of this stuff where it's not quite efficient. You know, it's a good idea that needs, needs more nudging. Well, uh, with that, uh, thank you so much, Penny. This is great. It was really nice talking to you. I did not know a lot of that stuff. <laughs> and yeah, have fun growing hemp and other, other things. <laughs> Well, thank you, Penny McBride, very much for joining us. And we all will look out for the chance to buy Second Chance Farms uh, produce when we're in the Delaware area (laughs) or, you you know, as you guys expand, I'm sure. Thank you, Penny. Thank you for speaking with us. It's been great. It's been so much fun. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks so much to our special guest, Penny McBride. Fields theme music is by Sam Tyndall. Our amazing producing engineer at Heritage Radio is Liam Werner. And another big thanks to Liam Werner for the music on this episode. Fields is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash Heritage Radio Network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.